Thank you for tuning in with us at Bayou City Fellowship Tomball, a community that's radically focused on Jesus. God's plan has always been to unite us with Himself and other believers through His Son. Our new life comes with a calling that urges us to radically love others in new ways. Join us as we go through the book of Ephesians in this sermon series called Unimaginable. Welcome to Bayou City Fellowship Tomball. My name is Kevin Bear. I'm the lead pastor here. And if we haven't met personally, um, please come up afterward. I'll be right over here. And I'd love to meet you personally. We have uh, started a journey through the book of Ephesians. That's what we're going to be studying this fall um, up until uh, Christmas. And so if you have um, a Bible, get to Ephesians chapter 1. If this is your first week, you are not far behind. We are still in chapter 1. Praise God. Uh, And we are going to be in verses 15 through 23, looking at uh, Paul's prayer over the Ephesians. So Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 through 23. I'm going to read for us, I'm going to pray, and then we will launch in. It says this, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which you have been called, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what are the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which fills his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your word. And Lord, thank you for um, the wisdom, the spiritual wisdom and insight that you gave Paul to pin this letter to a church that we can learn from. And Lord, I pray that as we open up your word, you would open up our hearts that we might see exactly what you want us to understand from this section. And Lord, my real prayer is that we would become a praying people that are deeply dependent on you. That the things that you have done for us would be known by us. And Lord, we would be prayerful people like Paul that pray without ceasing. And Lord, the impact would be great as your people spend time on their knees. And Lord, we ask that you guide our thoughts. Give us wisdom this morning. So you me pray. Amen. Amen. Well, uh, when, when Hillary and I were dating, uh, in, in, this was a time during college, uh, we, I wanted to have kind of a romantic moment. And so I, I decided I'm going to take her to a park. We are going to make a fire and, and have um, a little bit of a dinner there uh, at a fire in this park outside of Austin. And it was going to be this beautiful time. And so I had gone to HEB beforehand to buy firewood, right? Because you know I'm not shopping my own. Uh, and so I bought the firewood at HEB. I got the meal together. And, and so we're going to have this like picnic meal with a little fire going on. It's going to be amazing in this park that allowed fires. So safe place. Um, and so I get all this stuff together and I get out to that space to, to start the fire. And the, the problem was this. Uh, I don't know how to start a fire. 
Um, I never did all the trainings that most young men do in order to know how to start a fire, but I, I had my wood, and so I set it there, and, and I, as I set the wood there in this place, and, and, and Hillary's sitting there, I'm like, I don't know that this is enough, and I'm like, I need kindling, but fortunately, we were in a park, and so I'm like, there's like raw things over there, so I go get sticks and, and leaves, and I kind of put them together, and I kind of stack them together in this teepee to start this fire, and I light the match, I throw it under there, and nothing happens. I mean, absolutely nothing. And I had not thought far enough in advance to buy lighter fluid or anything that would help this thing go ablaze quickly. Uh, and so it's just not working and not working and not working. I'm like, I, I'm like I, I, this is ruining my beautiful plan. And, uh, and then Hillary's so sweet, she kind of chimes in. She said, says, hey, um, you know, in Girl Scouts, they taught us how to start fires. Um, and we built a log cabin. Uh, would you like to sh- me to show you how to do this? And by this point, we're like 45 minutes into me trying. I'm like, absolutely. You build the log cabin. Let's see. She builds the log cabin, puts the things there, lights one match, and the thing is ablaze. And I'm like, hmm, thank you, Girl Scouts. Um, and the reason I tell you that is for this simple reason. Sometimes when it comes to um, our life, we don't know how the pieces fit together. And if we don't know how the pieces fit together, we'll never get the flame that we desire to have. And the same is true in your Christian life. If you don't know how to stack the pieces together appropriately, your faith will not burn bright. The fuel of your faith will die quickly. But if the pieces are stacked appropriately, the spark of faith can move into a beautiful flame. But if we don't stack the pieces right, your faith and my faith will die quickly. It will get dull. It won't be a blaze of flame of passion for the Lord Jesus, but in reality, our faith will grow dull. And the reason I say that is because that's really where we are in Ephesians. Um, this, uh, the book of Ephesians, as we looked at last week, is really divided into, into two main sections. Chapters one through three talk about what you have in Christ, Chapters four through six talk about our actions as believers in Christ, and those are the two divisions in your scripture. What you have in Christ, chapters one through three, and what you should do as a Christian, versus uh, chapters four through six. And in this moment, we looked last week about um, what all that we have in Christ, all the amazing gifts that are given in Christ. And in this next section, Paul then stops that uh, description, that long run-on sentence of things that you have in Christ and moves to a a second run-on sentence where he talks about the prayer for this truth to drive deep into your hearts. There's there's about eight long sentence prayers, run-on sentence prayers. This is the second one in the book of Ephesians. And what Paul wants us to know is this, that the truths that we talked about last week need to sink deep into the hearts of believers. And if those things don't sink deep into your heart and my heart, the flame of faith will die and grow cold. And so this morning, we're going to look at the, the fuel of the spark of faith. We've got like a, a billion points. We're going to look at the, the deepening of our experiential knowledge of Christ. And then we're going to look at four things we need to know. So we're going to look at the fuel of the spark of faith, the deepening of our experiential knowledge, and four things that Paul prays and that I pray that we know. And the first is this, the fuel of the spark of faith. 
Look what Paul says in verse 15. In verse 15, he says, for this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. Paul, in these first two verses of 15 and 16, gives us the reason he begins to pray. He gives us the reason that he is praying for the, the church at Ephesus. He says, I, I, I heard two things from you. Look in your text, look at verse 15. He says, I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and secondly, your love for the saints. He says, I heard of two relationships that were present within you, Ephesians. I heard of your vertical relationship, your vertical relationship with Jesus that you believed, you put your faith alone in Christ alone for the forgiveness of your sins. I heard that, and I'll I also saw a, a second piece. I saw a horizontal relationship. And, and what's fascinating about those ideas, what, what, what struck me is this, that Paul didn't stop praying when the event of faith happened. Think about your prayer life. Think about my prayer life. I think for most of us, if we, if we are praying people, in fact, if I was to ask you about your prayer life, you might be a little bit, uh, I don't know, nervous about answering that question. You're like, I don't know. I, he's a professional prayer. He's amazing. I'm like, ah, well. But if I was to ask you about your prayer life, when do you start praying and when do you stop praying? I said, typically, you start praying when you want to see something happen, some event, right? You want this person healed. You want a new job. You want something to happen. We typically pray for events. What we don't often pray for is process. And that's really what Paul's gonna pray. He's, he begins turning up the heat on his prayer when he hears that they came to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Have you ever prayed that someone would come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? You prayed, and maybe it was a son or a daughter or a friend or a family member. You, you spent time deeply praying for that person. Lord, uh, make their, the lights come on. Make them know you. And, and as soon as they came to faith, what often happens to the, uh, the temperature of our prayers? They start turning down. Well, they did it, right? They're in. Wasn't that the point, that they believe in Jesus? Well, that wasn't the point for Paul. That wasn't the end point for his prayer. He says, they came to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. They have that vertical relationship and they have a secondly, a horizontal relationship, their love for one another's. Their love for one another. And I think this is so important. What Paul says is, I saw that not only did your love for Jesus grow, your love for us grew. Let me give you one small little note on this. When you know that, the, the, that it's really faith, that's really changed you, what the, the, the evidence of that, the demonstration of that, is when that love of Jesus spills out to the love of others. See, once Paul heard this, he couldn't stop seeing that, that they loved Jesus and they start loving other people. This is so important. What should happen to a believer, what should happen, is when you put your faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, it should spill over into love of others. He says he has love for all of the saints. And so the difficulty is, well, what exactly did they do? Well, Paul was hearing about this church. He was hearing what God was doing in their church. So it's likely that they were showing hospitality to travelers, that they were giving shelter to exiles because it wasn't popular to be a Christian. They were, many people were on the run. They were giving material needs to suffering Christians. They were helping church, the church spread through all out, uh, around Asia Minor. 
It says, Paul is hearing all of these reports of their love for fellow believers. And once he hears this, he says, I can't stop praying. He doesn't stop, he turns up the heat. And there's a reason for that. It's because prayer is the fuel, prayer is the fuel that makes the spark of faith grow into a steady flame. Prayer is the fuel for that. See, if you wanna know why things stop burning bright, it's because for some of us, we haven't fueled our faith with fervent prayer. He says, I haven't stopped praying since I heard of your faith. And now think about it in terms of a fire. Uh, when I'm making a, a fire now, um, I bring some lighter fluid. And so I make a fire pit in the backyard and I will spray that with lighter fluid. But, if, but what happens when you light the match, it goes and it burns quickly. It's a quick flame, it's a burn up. I tell the kids, stand back, otherwise your eyebrows are gonna get singed. Like it's a quick burn. And, and it fades quickly. And so then you've got to learn. I've got to stack it, the pieces a little bit more tightly, a little bit more properly. And, and it can burn a little bit brighter, a little bit stronger, and you can roast a marshmallow. But if you want to cut metal, you need a different source of fuel for that flame. You need a blowtorch with a steady stream of gas so that you can cut something. This. And if you want to send something into outer space, you know what you need? You want to send a rocket? You need a steady unrelenting fuel source to make that rocket go. Prayer is that fuel that fuels the spark of faith to a hope-filled, confident, powerful blaze of a Christ-filled life. Prayer is that fuel. Every great movement of God began with concerted efforts of prayer. Every one of them. Prayer is the fuel that moves faith deep. And often our prayers um, are too small, are too small. Our prayers may get us to the grocery store. Our prayer may not get us to outer space. And Paul says, I want to launch the Ephesian church into the stratosphere of the experience of God. In order to get there, we need a concerted effort of prayer. I'm gonna talk more of that in a second. But what is he praying for? Look at verse 17. He says that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. That God would give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation. Now, what is, he, is he saying it's a different spirit? No, no. He's saying I pray that the Holy Spirit that you have in Christ would, would make you come alive, would make this make sense to you. And he says that you would know him. It would give you a wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him. That word knowledge to know is epigenosis. It's, it's full knowledge with personal experience. It's information that drops deep into your heart. And it's impossible without divine revelation. But he says, I want your heart to love and know the things of God. And this is so important. This, the Christian life isn't a transfer of information. It's information that goes deep into the heart. And Paul says, I, I don't pray that they know more content. I pray that that content changes the heart. So, and, and I remember the first time I really experienced this, um, I really felt this with my parents. 
Um, I know my parents loved me, right? That, that general information, they have to. I'm their kid, right? I know, generally speaking, they love me. Some of you parents are going like, well, they don't have to. But I knew my parents loved me. But there was one moment in particular when I heard my parents um, arguing in the bathroom. And, and I, I realized in that moment how much they loved me. And here's what they were arguing about. I had gotten into a particular college, but I didn't know how I had gotten in. Had I gotten in through my grades or had I gotten in through some other means? And, and I heard my mom argue with my dad, like, I don't want to find out that information. And here's why. Because I don't want him to feel that he's unimportant, that he couldn't make it there. And I remember just hearing my parents argue about whether or not to find out more information about me that could either encourage me or to hurt me. And I remember them arguing about me and what I needed to know and what would be most helpful for me to grow and continue. And, and I realized in that moment how much they loved me. They weren't bickering. They weren't mad at one another. They were saying, I want this kid to grow and to flourish. And we will argue, we will fight, we will debate to figure out what it will take for this kid to flourish. It was like that rock of, I know they love me, to this other point of like, they're they're discussing me, they're talking about me, they're thinking about me. That's a different level of knowledge. That, that care sunk a different, to a different place. Paul says, look, I want you to know the Father of glory, that he gives you a spirit of wisdom and revelation to know him and to know how much he cares for you. Do you know God? Not content, not details. Do you have a personal relationship with God? A personal interaction with God where you know him, where you can talk with him, where you can listen to him, where you can write out your thoughts, when you can let your emotions flow towards him, when you can listen to him and receive what he says through his word or through prayer. Do you have a personal, intimate relationship with God? That's what Paul's asking for. Not just the information that comes through scripture, but the transformation that comes from knowing the person of God. He says, I want you to know him. And there's three pieces that this knowledge should drive into your heart of this intimate relational connection. He says, I want you first to know the hope of your calling. I want the eyes of your heart enlightened. I want your heart to know the truth so that you would know, first of all, the hope of your calling. Look at verse 18. Having the eyes of your heart enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. Calling is this. We looked at it last week. That God that calls people to himself. He draws them to himself. And when he draws you to himself, he sets your life in an entirely new direction. He doesn't call you to live as you lived. He calls you to follow him and live fully for him. He says, I want you to know the hope into which you've been called. And many of us hope in really small things. We hope in a new job. Hey, I hope you get a new job. We hope in to retire early. I hope you get to retire early. But that's not the hope of the calling that God has for you. In fact, if you look over in, in verses uh, in chapter one, verses three through 14, there are tons of huge words that I'm not gonna define for us, but we see all throughout chapter one, verses three through 14. And I'm gonna give you some of these. First, you're in Christ. He's put you in the son. Secondly, you're chosen. He picked you out. 
You're predestined, that he brings you into the family. You're adopted, you're one of his kids. You're redeemed, he forgave everything about you. You're forgiven, you are filled with the Holy Spirit. That's all from chapter one, but as Paul goes on in the book, you see other things that you have that are part of your calling. You're filled with the Spirit. You're alive with Christ. You're newly created for good works in Ephesians 2. You're no longer a stranger or an alien, Ephesians 2. You can be a spirit-filled wife. You can be a spirit-filled husband. You can be a spirit-filled son or daughter. A spirit-filled teenager. It's possible. (laughs) And I love Ephesians 6. You can be a spirit-filled warrior for the purposes of Christ. See, at the end of the book, he doesn't just want you to be a good citizen. He wants you to be a warrior for him on his mission, on his purpose. That's why in Ephesians 6, he equips you for war. The helmet of salvation, the shield of faith, the sword of the spirit. He gives all of these things to you so that you can wage war for Christ. Well, what does that war look like? It means that we rescue people from darkness to light. Is that you bring people from, from not knowing God to knowing God. It means he wants you to have the hope that you have a mission and a purpose that's larger than yourself that you can get swept in to the purposes of God. That's the hope of your calling. Not only the hope of your calling, secondly, he wants you to know your inheritance in the saints. Also in verse 18, what are the riches of the glorious, of his glorious inheritance in the saints? He says, I want you to know that you have an inheritance. And when you know that you're taken care of, you can live courageously. When you know you're cared for, you can live courageously. Paul, Peter describes this inheritance this way in 1 Peter 1.4. He says, you've been given an inheritance which is imperishable, undefiled, and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. Here's what Paul says in Romans about this inheritance. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed to us. He says, I want you to know that you're taken care of. And if you know that your future is secure, it's not in question, you can live courageously in your present. That's why I want you to know your inheritance. Some of us um, are, are, are so afraid of risking for God because we don't think he cares for us in the end. I remember when I was in seventh grade, I played recreational basketball um, over in Katy. You can go there and play yourself if you're young enough. And I was playing this recreational basketball, and I had a coach that may have been like the coach you've experienced growing up. It was a coach that just wanted you, the way he led was this. He would just yell at us and then tell us uh, when we messed up. There was very little encouragement. And so his, his coaching method was, do what I told you to do. That was his coaching method. And he would just yell. And I remember as a young kid, a 13-year-old kid, every time I would dribble the ball up the floor, my goal wasn't to put points on the board. My goal was for him not to yell at me, right? That was my goal. And so I would dribble up the, the, the floor and I wouldn't try to take a shot, even if I was open, because I knew if I missed, I was just gonna get yelled at. And I, did, I wasn't even trying to make good passes, like, like as a guy would cut to the rim, not make that pass. Why? 
because it may not get to him and then he's gonna yell at me for not making a good pass. So I would just be like, well, if that guy comes up here, I will pass that way to him. You know, like I just wouldn't, I wouldn't do anything to move the ball forward because I was terrified of this guy yelling at me. Transition that or contrast that with my eighth grade year of recreational basketball. You see my high level of performance, right? Um, I had a different coach, an entirely different perspective. He said to us, hey, I want you to have fun playing this game. There are things you've got to do to play this game well. There are skills that you need. There are passes you need to make. But I want you to risk. I want you to try. And you know what? You're not going to hit every shot. They don't hit every shot in the NBA either, right? If you shoot 50% from the field, you're amazing, right? He says, I want you to play hard, and when you make a mistake, we'll work to correct it together, and then we'll keep on going. And I'll tell you what, it was an entirely different experience. Under the second coach, I was, I was willing to take shots. I mean, I'm, at some points in the season, I remember throwing behind the back passes, and the coach would be like, all right, what are you doing there? And I'm like, I'm, I just felt good, right? And it worked. And, and I just felt an entirely different perspective when I knew that, that I wasn't threatened with sitting on the bench or being pulled out of the game or being yelled at by this coach. And let me tell you, the God of the universe loves you like the second coach, not the first coach. Some of you have been so beaten up in your faith, you think that that your inheritance is held over you like a ransom. Like if you live well enough, God will let you into heaven and give you some stuff. If you live well enough, then then then. Jesus will like you. But that's not true. It's a complete lie. Paul would have phrased this completely differently if he said heaven or your future is a ransom for you. He doesn't. He says, I want you to know the hope of your calling. And I want you to know the inheritance that you have among the saints. This whole thing is secure. You're not gonna lose God brought you into the family. He's given you all these things so that when you stand before God, you know, you know he's gonna say, well done, good and faithful servant. Thank you for living a faithful life. Charles Swindoll in his commentary writes this. He says, there'll be a point in time when we stand in glory, basking in our internal inheritance, all of our human limitations, physical diseases and disabilities, emotional baggage, hardship and handicaps will be forever put away. Amen. Amen. And when I know that my future is secure, it means that I know that I have a God who loves me, a heavenly father that's saying, come on mission with me. Come risk with me. And then the third piece he praises this, that you would know the power, the power that God has towards you. Verse 19, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe? According to the working of his great might, he says, I want you to know the power that God has for you. It's, it's, it's interesting that, that Paul uses this word and, and, and this phrasing. He like stacks on the adjectives. He says, I want you to know specifically the power that's dynamis of God's God's function towards you, the energy, the the strength of it, and and the might of it. He stacks up all these words to to show you 
that, that the power that God has towards you believers. And it's called this immeasurable greatness. Like, like you can't measure it. The power that's toward us who believe. Stott writes, he says, God's abilities are at a, in an entirely different plane than anything you might be able to um, experience or accomplish yourselves. He says, I want you to know the power of God that's towards you, that's for you. He says, I want you to know that you, are, you have a calling, a purpose in God. You have an inheritance, your future is secure. And in your present, you have the power of God at your disposal. It's towards you. It's in you. Jesus tells his disciples, he says, I'm going away. But don't worry, what, what, ask whatever you want in my name and it'll be, it'll be given to you. Does that mean I can pray for anything? Well, James gives us a corrective later on where he says, he says look, you, you, sometimes you're not getting your prayers answered because you pray selfishly to put it on your own desires. Like that's not the prayer that I'm talking about. But if we pray in accordance with God's design, God is happy to say, absolutely. Yes, I'm in in Christ. And it's that power of God that's towards us who believe. And many of us, we, we, we're living in, in an impotent way, in powerful way, because we don't know that God has called us to be in his service. He's guaranteed our future and he's given us power today to work for him. And Paul is saying, I want all of these ideas to drop deep into your heart. I want you to know who you are in Christ. I want you to know what you have at your disposal. And listen, if we actually believe this and we prayed this way and we prayed for these things, our communities would be different. Our lives would be different. And in the last section, I just made it to its own, its own section. It's really under that power portion. But the fourth piece you have to know is you have to know your place. Verse 20 says, the power that worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and dominion and above every name that is named. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. He says, you've been placed in Christ. And who is Christ? He says, well, when the power that's working in the church, in believers, is the same power that raised Christ from the dead and seated him in the heavenly places. What does that mean? It's that Christ is just chilling in the heavenly places? False. Seated means you're in that place of authority. The right hand means that you're, you're right there in, in a place of authority next to the heavenly father. And, and Jesus is seated, meaning that he is ruling and reigning from heaven. He is ready to act. He is seated in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and dominion and everything that is named. He is above everything. Um, in sports, they always have the debate on who is the goat. There's the goat in football. Is it Tom Brady or someone else? Uh, there's the goat in basketball. Is it Michael Jordan or LeBron James or someone else? 
Uh, there's the GOAT of the Olympic champions. Is it Michael Phelps or someone else? And so there's always this debate. Who is the GOAT? It's so funny. Every now and then I'll watch first take and that's just the debate. Okay, who's the GOAT today? All right, it's a debate every single day. Who knows? Who knows? Who's the best one? Who's the best? Let me tell you what. When you stand before God in his glory, there will be no debate. There's no debate. When you look at Jesus, you will say, you are the GOAT, Right? You are the greatest of all time, right? You are far, far above every rule and authority and every name that is named. You're not gonna be like, hey, well, this guy was pretty good. You see him hit a three-pointer? Like, no one's gonna care, right? You see that guy? He swam really fast. Like, no one's gonna be like, yeah, he did swim pretty fast. No, no. you're gonna look at Jesus who is ruling and reigning above everything. And, and, and where is Jesus given? What, what does it say that Jesus is given to the greatest of all time, where is he given to? Everything is under his feet. And he gave him his head over all things to the church, to the church. What is the church? It's all believers at all times in all places. That's the big C church. All believers at all times in all places. You have access to your heavenly father through the greatest of all time, Jesus Christ, who has been given to us. That's your place. You are in Christ. You are, he's at the right hand of God. And so when we pray, when we pray, we're talking to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords who can do anything because everything is under him. Everything. Is cancer under him? Absolutely. Is your financial situation under him? Absolutely. Is your future underneath him? Absolutely. Is the salvation of your wayward son or daughter underneath him? Absolutely. Everything is under him and he has power over everything and he gave them to the church, to believers, so that we can have a conversation, so we can ask God, we can let our requests be made known to him. And, and one of the things I just wanted to do in this moment is, is, is that that's true. Every believer at all times is under Christ and you have access to your heavenly father through Jesus. But one of the things that, that also is true is that there is a local expression of believers. We are a church. I hope that doesn't surprise any of you here. We are church. We are a local gathering of believers seeking the Lord together. That's what we are. And, and in Paul's letters, all of his letters are directed to churches. I don't know if you know that. Um, in, in Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, it says, Paul to the church at Corinth. So a local expression of believers in Corinth. In Galatians, it says, Paul to the churches of Galatia, to local expressions, local bodies there. Uh, in Romans, it's to the saints that are in Rome, the, the, the gathering of believers. In Ephesians, it's to the saints at Ephesus, that gathering of believers. In Philippi, this is interesting, Philippians, it's, the letter is sent to the saints in Philippi and to the overseers and deacons. So you even have some roles of, of authority within that local church body. In Colossians, it says to the, the saints in Colossae um, and to the faithful brothers. And so Paul, as he's writing each one of his letters, is writing to local expressions of believers. And, and, and the purpose of that is because he knows that there's, there's a local presence under the authority of Jesus that are, that are being led in a way that's, that's caring for those particular people. 
um, he'll write to Timothy later on to help in the church of Ephesus. And so there, there's, a, there's a reality that, that, yes, Jesus is given to everyone at all places, um, every believer under him. But Paul, as he's writing to particular churches, he's talking about local church expressions. That's how Paul writes on this. And the reason I spend a little bit of time there is because I think we have been unclear at Bayou City Fellowship Tomball as to what it means to be a member of the local body. And so we have a slide to make it really clear to you, all right? So here's a slide. What does it mean to be um, part of the local body? This This isn't church universal. That's faith alone in Christ alone. But what does it mean to be part of the local body? Well, here's um, your, your steps. There's a slide for this. This is going to be really fun for all of us. Ready? It's a black slide. It's really fun. We need to get there. No dice. We're trying. There we are. Church membership. All right. So, Kevin, how do I become a member of the local body? Look, this, this doesn't make Jesus love you more. This doesn't make you more love or loved by us, but this is the process of local church membership. We good? We good. All right. And then we're getting back into the sermon. Okay. One, you tend to connect class. We got one coming up in October. It's a class where we tell you all about our local church and what, what it looks like to be a part of us. Two, you complete a questionnaire. There's a one little one-page thing with some boxes to check and your testimony to write out. There's a questionnaire. Number three, you have a conversation. Uh, you meet with one of our staff or Alan and myself and we just talk to you about your, your journey of faith and how you came to faith in Jesus Christ and why you want to be part of our, of our local body. It's a simple conversation. Uh, and number four, this is the newest part, is you sign a membership commitment. Um, one of the things that we wanted to do was to be really clear about what it looks like, what you should expect from us as a local church. And so there's eight points. I'm not going to go through them. Um, what it means to be part of local church, what our commitment to you is. And then uh, there's another eight points of what your commitment to the local church is. Um, if you are already a member, uh, you will be receiving that document in an email. And so we have, we have a list of members, but here's the reality. With COVID in the past couple years, all of those documents and all of that information has not always been clearly uh, kept up. So some of you may think you're members and you may not be, and some of you are members um, that, that you didn't know you are, and so you'll get something in the mail and be like, oh, great. Um, so we just want to be clear on all of these things. So everyone who is currently a member will get this document, and, and, if, and all it requires is you to read through it. If you have any questions about it, let us know. We'd love to sit down and discuss it. Um, and if you're good with what's being communicated, which is nothing new than what we've said in our Connect classes and other places, it's nothing new. Um, if, 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 it, if it's clear to you and you're good with it, we just ask that you'd use that DocuSign, sign the document, and then we'll kind of walk through that process just to clarify where everyone's at. So that's the process of our local church membership and expression. We good on that? If you want to be a member, Come to our Connect class and we'll start this process for you, all right? That's what local church membership looks like here. And here's, here's the point of all of this. When the people of God come together in a concerted effort of prayer and seeking the Lord together, incredible things happen. Incredible things happen. I mentioned at the beginning of the sermon this, that every great movement of God began with concerted efforts of prayer. Let me read you a quote from W.A. McKay. He says this, when Elijah prayed, the nation was reformed. When Hezekiah prayed, the people were healed. 
When the disciples prayed, Pentecost appeared. When John Wesley prayed and his companions prayed, England was revived. When John Knox prayed, Scotland was refreshed. When the Sabbath school teachers at Tannenbreak prayed, 11,000 were added to the church in one year. When Luther prayed, the papacy, the papacy was shaken. When Baxter prayed, Kidminster was aroused. And the lives of Winston, Payson, Edwards, Tennant, whole nights of prayer were succeeded by whole days of soul winning. To your knees then, O Christians, plead until the windows open, plead until the springs unlock, plead until the clouds part, plead until the rains descend, plead until the floods unleash. You realize that this campus was started through concerted efforts of prayer. A group of people got together and started praying for months. Lord, would you open up an opportunity for us to meet in Tomball? And by the grace of God, we're here through concerted efforts of prayer. I can tell you throughout, I've been reading all week about the great movements of God that were started with concerted efforts of prayer. The Great Awakening, the Second Great Awakening. One that you may not be familiar with is the Businessmen's Revival. In 1857, a group of businessmen in New York City, of all places, got together and started seeking the face of God. And when there was an economic collapse right there in 1858, this small group of lay businessmen that got together and started seeking the Lord together started growing and growing and growing. And hundreds of thousands of businessmen would get together on their lunch breaks to seek the Lord together. Some revivalists, some, some historians say that's the last great movement of God in America. I don't, I don't know if, if I buy into that. But it was significant. It wasn't led by clergy. It was led by ordinary people. And God moved. And people's lives were changed. The goal of talking about Paul's prayer isn't so that you have good Bible trivia you can outline a text, although you can now. But it's so that we would do it. So we would do it. So I want you to take a moment right now. What do you need to lift up to God? What do you want him to do? What move do you want God to make? So I'm going to take a risk right now. And I'm going to ask us to get on our knees and pray. To pray like Paul prayed. And so maybe there's a family member that has never come to faith in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins, and you've never actually prayed for them. You're like, God, I hope, you know, Aunt Jeannie, whatever. But you haven't begged God to do something big. Maybe there's a, a, a big movement of God you would love to see happen in your own place of work. You're like, Kevin, those people are all evil. There's no way they're coming to faith in Jesus Christ. Do you believe in the power of God? I do. So I want to take a moment right now, and if you're willing, if you're able, let's get on our knees. And let's ask God, to move in the hearts of the people that we love, to move in the hearts of this community.
Would you spend a moment praying? We pray for salvation in our schools. We pray for our kids. Would you lift up the names of the schools that you can think through? Lord, we lift up our family members to you. The ones that don't know you, that they would come to faith. The ones that know you, that they would continue to progress in faith. Lord, we lift up our local body here that we would be filled with your spirit, that we'd be passionately seeking you. And Lord, as the rains have been falling these past couple days, your spirit would fall on this community. That people would know the life-changing gospel of Jesus Christ and move into the world. We ask all these things in the name of Jesus. The name above every name. Where all authority and power and dominion belong to him. And we ask all of these things, Jesus, for your glory, not ours. Amen. Thank you for listening to today's message. We hope that you feel encouraged. To stay up to date with our current sermon series, you can subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. If you would like to find more ways to get involved with the Bayou City family, visit us online at bayoucityfellowship.com or download the Bayou City Fellowship Tomball app to find community in the body of Christ.